Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from the coolest places on the planet, quite literally. You're here with me, Jack Buckingham. I'll be your host once again today. And have you ever wondered what it feels like to be an artist on a ship full of scientists sailing around the Arctic Ocean? Okay, you probably haven't. But our guest today knows exactly how that feels. She is a documentary filmmaker from the University of Colorado, Boulder. And she was lucky enough to be invited on the first leg of the expedition. Probably one of the coolest expeditions that I am aware of in polar science right now. If you're in polar science, you've probably heard of it. And if you're not in polar science, why would you have heard of it? That's why you listen to Polar Times. So we're going to tell you all about it, and we're going to tell you about her experience and what an exciting time she had. And you can even watch the film that she made. We will be telling you all about that in today's episode. Please, please, please don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe. We are on all of your little podcast places. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple, we're on Amazon. I think we're everywhere. So yeah, go ahead and leave us a review. And if you would like to get in touch with us about anything that we said or if you'd like to recommend a guest who you want to see on the podcast in the future, then we have a new email. And that, that email is thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. Once again, thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. And you can also tweet Apex, the Association of Polar Early Career Scientists, and they're on Twitter at polar underscore research. So yeah, feel free to ask us your questions and give us your guest recommendations and Thank you once again for listening to Polar Times. Okay, everyone, please put your hands together and welcome to the stage, Amy Richmond. Hi, Amy. How's it going? Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. My pleasure. My pleasure. So this is the first section of the show. We'd like to call it the icebreaker. And so tell us, who are you? What do you do? How did you get to the polar world? Okay, so my name is Amy Richman. I am a multimedia artist and filmmaker. Yeah, how I ended up in the polar world is, I guess there's a backstory to that. So my background is in English and studio art. That's what I studied as an undergrad. And I've always loved interdisciplinary um, collaborations. And so part in part, it was a matter of uh, luck and just being in the right place at the right time. But even as an undergrad student, I was always trying to build bridges between different disciplines, which at the time, there wasn't a lot of support for that. No one was really interested in fostering those connections. My English teachers were like, you want to do what with the photo department? And the photo department was like, you want to do what with biology? But I've always loved the connections between disciplines and the spaces of overlap, I think, more than I've loved any one discipline. So I've always looked for opportunities that supported interdisciplinary collaborations. So it was no different during my MFA program where I was looking for those kinds of opportunities. And again, being in Boulder, Colorado, the University of Colorado Boulder, we have NOAA and Ceres and the NSIDC right in our backyard. So when the call for a filmmaker to create a planetarium documentary about the Mosaic Expedition circulated, it circulated through the university. So that was my introduction 
to the polar worlds. Okay, excellent. So just to clarify, like NOAA and CIRA is their like um, American kind of oceanographic. Uh, yeah, sorry. CIRA is the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Science, and NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and then that we also have the National Snow and Ice Data Center. You're based at the University of Colorado, or you were at the time, but still are. And then they came around, they just put it around to all the university kind of faculties, I suppose. We want a filmmaker for this for this project. Yeah, so I mean, I really, I really have to give credit to Anna Gold, the director of series Education Outreach, and then of course Matthew Shoup, the co-coordinator for Mosaic and principal investigator of the National Science Foundation grant that funded um, the science that also funded the planetarium project, which was the education outreach or the public outreach component of that grant. And I imagine it would have been much easier just to say, oh, okay, for the public outreach part, we're going to present a paper at a scientific conference of peers. But they really had this vision to create something different for the education outreach, and they envisioned a planetarium film. Yeah, so the call for a filmmaker to make that circulated through the university. Okay, excellent. And you were like, wow, that sounds cool. You know, yes. I want to get in on that. So It this doesn't is, get much cooler than that. <laughs> not really, yeah. So you had to apply and then they chose yeah. you based on your work and you got to be part of the Mosaic project slash yes. expedition. So exactly. you're my first guest we've had who's ever been on Mosaic. Okay. Give everyone a little bit of a background on what that is. It's one of the biggest and most exciting polar things that I myself am currently aware of. And you were fortunate enough to be there right at the beginning, at the first leg of it. And that's what your film kind of documents, isn't it? So yes. I'm sure you can describe it better than I am. What is Mosaic? I've got the acronym here. It stands for Multidisciplinary Drifting Observatory the study of Arctic climate. Yeah, so Mosaic is an interdisciplinary scientific expedition to study the Arctic climate system. And there are scientists from all over the world, each studying, you know, each with their own very specific question that deals with a part of the climate system. And the idea was that, well, if all of these scientists come together to study their question, their part of the climate system at the same time, then we can really fill in this picture of the whole Arctic climate. Oh, yes, it's really cool. I can hardly get over it. So basically they took their big ship from the Polish Stern, it's called, Mm -hmm. from the Alfred Wegener Institute, which is in Germany. And they basically, they sailed all these scientists up to the Arctic and then basically deliberately froze it into the Arctic sea ice and then kind of parked, I suppose, and then let the, you know, the nature take its course and the ship just kind of drifted around for a whole year. And it began last September, so it's finishing about now, I believe. Yes, and I'm sorry, I forgot this is a podcast. I'm like nodding, but nobody can see me nodding. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> oh, good. The expedition, I, the Polish Stern is due to return to uh, Germany October 12th so it's been it's definitely been a year since we left on September 20th and we've just passed September 20th and the idea like you said was to the ship would freeze to an ice flow and that piece of ice that flow is what the ship was attached to frozen to and what the scientists were studying so we studied sort of the life cycle of the sea ice the life cycle of that one flow since it was fall it had already formed but yeah from its birth to its decay. Yeah, and then kind of like every, literally every aspect of it, like you say, like atmosphere and ice and biology and sea and everything. So 
That's so cool. So you had to go up to Tromsø in Norway, which is like the top of Norway, I assume, as close to the Arctic as you can get. Yes, they call it the gateway to the Arctic. Yes, indeed. So then, and that's where you got on the Polish turn for the first time. Have you ever been on a research vessel or any vessel that big? Was this your first kind of scientific, I suppose, adventure? (laughs) Oh my gosh, yes. This was my first time actually on a ship. My first time on a boat, I'd been in a canoe but I don't really think that counts. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit different, post and canoe. Little different. <laughs> different and it, and it was really funny, actually, because in the days, you know, leading up to the departure, I was at a restaurant in Tromso, and, you know, there was a young student who was working at the restaurant and she, you know, was asking the typical questions like, are you a tourist? What are you doing here? When I told her, her eyes just got so big and she was like, I want to do that. How, how can I do that? Yeah. And I was like, you live in Tromsø. Like you're here in the gateway to the Arctic around all these ships, you know, and even, even she didn't know how to go about becoming like an Arctic scientist to be able to go on these ships and on these research vessels. So I thought, well, that that definitely has to be an important part of education outreach, you know, yeah. not just communicating the facts of a place or if the facts of the science, but how can you do this? You know, people don't even know that this world is out there of scientists who live on ships and go to crazy places. Yeah, yeah, it's excellent. And Mosaic were, they were quite good, weren't they? They were super keen, like you say, on all of their outreach. There were other kind of journalists on board and, you know, other, I suppose, you know, it wasn't purely science. Um, oh, there were there were lots of journalists. Yeah, especially during the first six weeks. Um, National Geographic, BBC. There's, of course, the German production company that's making the documentary series about the expedition. So there, there were a lot of journalists on board, but of course, mostly scientists. Mm-hmm. And, and logistics, of course, very important. The bear guards and the crew and everyone keeping the ship running so we didn't freeze. Yeah. <laughs> so it was September. So that's, that's when it's light in the Arctic. But then you stayed on board until January? Yes. Well, we left. The transfer, I think, was officially or unofficially December 16th. We left December 18th. So I didn't get back to Tromso until January 5th, but it was three weeks on the Russian icebreaker to get back to land. Okay. And by that time, it's gone completely dark, 24-7? Yes, that was polar night. Maybe, and you lived through the transition as well. That must have been quite an experience. So why don't you tell us a bit about kind of the brief that you had? So you were kind of hired, I suppose, or headhunted or <laughs> to, make a, to make a documentary of the first few months. Did you have any specific goals or targets? It's an interesting question because... Normally, whenever I start a project, I always like to do a lot of research on what, how other artists have been working with uh, the subject matter, how other artists have been trying to communicate ideas. And there wasn't a planetarium documentary about the Arctic. So I didn't have examples really to turn to. And, you know, the great thing and also the challenge of the project, I would say, was that it could be anything, right? Nobody really had a clear idea of what it was that they wanted the film to be. You know, should it be art? Does it is it specifically education outreach for K through twelve? 
kids uh, on field trips? Um, should it be for the general audience and not and for adults as well as kids? It was like this, this film could be anything. And because it could be anything, nobody really knew what it could be. So I was definitely kind of putting the story together as I was going along. And I had done so much research into the science and the concepts. And then once I got there, I kind of had to trust that that was in my brain and just let that go and then just focus on what I was seeing. And I guess the story that ended up emerging was I was just blown away by how much work it was, just how much labor went into getting these numbers. So that's that's kind of how I framed the story. Yeah, and you say one quote, which I, stuck out to me so much in your film, it was like, science is not just about the mind, it's about the body as well, <laughs> which is something that I, from my own film work, I feel that quite strongly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I see that in your film. So the film is called uh, Drifting North into the Polar Night. And you can watch a version, you can watch a version of it on YouTube. And it is, may I say, it's absolutely stunning. I've watched it about six or seven times in the last few days entirely. I literally just watched it just now. So you film in a kind of, it's kind of a 360 degree kind of shot, isn't it? So you can see, it looks like a circle, like you're looking through a porthole. And it's really, um, what I took from it was that it's kind of mesmerizing really and it was beautiful to watch a lot. I picked out all my favorite shots here. We can talk about them all if you like, but (laughs) it was really good. So um, what made you choose to, instead of just, I suppose it was because you uh, wanted to do the, it had to be for a planetarium. That's why it had to be 360 rather than just a, you know, a documentary of the first three months. Yes, that the the circle and the square format on YouTube is the dome format. So that's the way it needs to be projected for planetarium theaters. Okay. Um, and it is very different thinking compositionally filming 360. And then of course, you're like, okay, I got all the action, you know, around the camera, but then where, what, which do you put in the main kind of focus in the theater for people to see? So it was definitely a challenge and a lot of fun filming that way. Thank you, by the way, for the kind words about oh, it. Yeah, no. And so the film is about uh, 25 minutes long or just over. And how much footage did you have total? How much cutting and editing and <laughs> choosing of your favorite bits did it? Did it take? Oh my gosh, that part I've, you know, is kind of is like, in, that was... yeah, blocked. It's, it's embedded with, you know, the being in quarantine and making this from my bedroom at home on a laptop computer without like the studio. So yeah, I'm recovering from that. But total, they, I took back 15 terabytes of footage. Not all of that was 360 for the planetarium, but because it was dark and we had entered polar night and I wasn't sure how the 360 camera would handle the dark, I was also filming with the Sony. And so in some of those sections, I, I've definitely sort of collaged pieces of footage together to create a 360 feel but it was 15 terabytes of footage that I brought back wow yeah it it, it totally works whatever you're doing and (laughs) there's also a virtual reality version that you can watch if you have that set up at home which I personally would don't but would love to have (laughs) yeah and you can still watch that online it's fun to kind of scroll around the screen it is from the perspective of being in a planetarium theater and seeing it in the dome um, and so you kind of get a better sense of how 
the circle and the square version that's online gets translated into a planetarium theater. I, I just, I'm not at all uh, an artist or a filmmaker or any kind of documentary person, <laughs> but you know what I what the bits that I really liked about it just from watching it was, you know some I suppose some bits of it it looks really busy where there's people moving around or if you've got a whole if you've got a whole horizon stretched into a circle it looks like there's quite a lot happening, but then, you know, that's kind of what life is like on, on board one of these ships. To contrast that with the still quiet moments of people working at night or, you know, the polar bears walking across the ice. It just really, I mean, I've only been on a research vessel like once, but it really kind of captured what I can picture it being like in a, such a place as a Polish stone. So, you know, if you've never been on a ship before, or if you have been on a ship before, definitely check it out because it's awesome. Uh, what was your favorite what was your favorite thing to shoot? Did you have a bit like oh wow that's really cool or <laughs> and I suppose opportunities presented themselves as as you went on along the trip that you didn't plan for. Hmm. Gosh, you know, yeah, I'll have to answer that maybe in retrospect because when you're in the moment and you're filming and it's so cold and your hands, you only have a certain number of times you can take your hands out of your gloves before they stop working and you can't press buttons anymore and the battery is about to die. And you're just focused on getting, just getting something on camera, getting it recorded. And with the 360 cameras, uh, the batteries die pretty quickly in that cold. And so you wanna have the camera running for the event that's happening, which means that, and, and you know, they may take, a, the scientists may take a little bit longer to set up than you anticipated. So then yeah, the battery dies nice. right before like the actual event that you wanted to film. And so you're just like so focused on just recording as much as you possibly can. I, I one of my favorite shots is I, I loved climbing up to the crow's nest. The crow's nest is one of the tallest parts of the ship that you can get to and you enter this little closet and it's a small space and there's a ladder that goes all the way up and people wear harnesses because it's kind of scary to climb up there and so I climbed up there and that was where you can see the difference at the beginning you can see a lot of the different the mosaic of ice patterns and so that was one of my favorite places to film I think maybe that's maybe a better way I could answer it is there were places on the ship that were my favorite places to go and the crow's nest was one of my favorite places on the ice i knew that the underwater footage was going to be so cool um, when the our rov surfaced and i saw that the camera had not died i was like yes we got it <laughs> oh thank goodness <laughs> yeah yeah 100 and then basically the scientists you froze yourself into the ice but you didn't stay on board the ship everyone was spreading out within there setting up the kind of you know lots of experiments and i'm gonna say bits and bobs on the ice because i <laughs> not doing <Yeah>. my <laughs> research as thoroughly as i should you know they did as it they had lots of different things kind of set up was it like almost a little village or was yeah how could you just easily walk out onto the ice and onto the ship quite freely yeah so i thought that it was going to be from reading the just reading the proposal they made it seem like there was going to be a central observatory which there was and of course i can only speak for the first leg of the expedition i, I imagine that it was different in different seasons like you know leg four where it's midnight sun and it's laid out permanently i think they had more freedom to move around on the ice um, but we had a pretty strict windows of opportunity to go on the ice and everyone had to go out with the bear guard. There had to be at least two people who knew how to operate um, the rifle and that 
was for the bear's protection. That doesn't sound like it's for the bear's protection, but it was for the bear's protection. Yeah, I mean, I guess the average day was you would wake up, um, have breakfast. Everybody was on the ice 9 to 11.30. Lunch was 11.30 to 12.30. There were meetings from 12.30 to 1. Everyone's back on the ice until 5.30. 5.30 is dinner. Um, 5.30 to 6.30 is dinner. Digesting 6.30 to 7. The general meeting 7 to 7.30. Standing in line for the shop that was open. Each night it was something different like snacks or toiletries or whatever was needed till eight and then everybody just kind of settled in and got ready for the next day. So there were windows that we were allowed to go on the ice, but you couldn't just go onto the ice by yourself. You always had to be at least with one other person. It was a little research village. We had Met City, Ocean City, ROV Oasis, um, the distributed network, the remote sensing station. And so, yeah, everybody would walk off the ship and go to their respective stations and do work for the amount of time that we were allowed before we had to come back onto the ship. It's a bizarre mix of polar field workers net of kind of the routine things like you're saying and then the you know the surprising moments or events which kind of catch you off guard I suppose. Yeah. Um, you know like a great sunset or people like oh my god bears ahoy <laughs> and you, you know things like that. <laughs> Bears ahoy. Bears ahoy. Is that not what they said? That's exactly what they said. <laughs> yeah, that's what I totally imagined. Yeah, but then it doesn't always, it doesn't always go to plan as it, you know, as anything in the field doesn't. Um, there was a storm whilst you were on board the ship. That was oh, yes. In the film. There was quite the storm. Um, and and the bear- set up their little village on the ice. They're kind of, they had it, so they had everything up <laughs> and then the storm came. <laughs> Everything was up and then a few things came down. Yeah, the storm was really, it was, it was an event, if I had to call it anything. It was, it was definitely an event. Um, and you just saw, you know, the ice crack and the research stations drift from the right side of the ship in front of the bow and then off. And that was after polar bears had, you know, taken down cables and things had to be set up again. And then, of course, it was just kind of like fireworks, you know, the tripwire went off and then you see bears coming from the distance and the storms going. And it was just uh, a beautiful madness. Yeah, absolute chaos. Yeah. (laughs) And I asked everyone, you know, I was curious because... You know, a lot, the, a lot of the scientists on like one were, I would say, seasoned Arctic scientists. They had been on ships before. Um, and I was like, is this, you know, did you expect this? Like, nobody seemed too upset. I mean, people were upset, but it wasn't just like this was. And everyone's like, yeah, I mean, you you know that this can happen. You hope that it doesn't, but it's always a possibility. Yeah. <laughs> so it was this funny kind of balance of people being really bummed out but also not totally unexpected yeah yeah i mean like literally <laughs> i suppose it's like what can you do <laughs> there's no point crying that my you know my equipment's floated away <laughs> can't think about hi yeah just watching it go <laughs> yeah yeah crazy crazy okay so you kind of and you narrated the film yourself did you uh, always plan that or <laughs> yeah that decision um came f- for a couple of reasons. One, whenever I'm working, I always like to just see how something is going to look from every possible angle. So we wrote a more objective third person script. We wrote different, I wrote different versions just to get a sense of how it, how it could sound. And then because of COVID and quarantine, it became impossible to 
um, you know, the planetarium closed, so the sound booth closed, and it became impossible to hire somebody to read the script. And so then I was thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to be reading it, it might as well be in first person. And then I noticed that the first person was doing something, I think, kind of interesting that I was excited about. I feel like often in documentaries that I see about science or just in the way that you know, science is communicated, it's very objective, right? Like it just exists. Like it would exist whether I was there or not. There are these universal laws, they're constants, you know, they're just there. And it doesn't really matter if I'm there or not, like the science would just exist. So I wanted the audience to feel like they mattered to the show, like they mattered to the science. So not just that, you know, the story was being told because the audience was there, but that the information and that the numbers and the science really only existed because the audience was there also. So that the viewers just had this feeling that the science was kind of stepping towards them instead of them just sitting there being like, yeah, here's this information. You know, I don't really matter to the information. Sure. So I thought that was exciting. And the kind of take home message of the film, I suppose, which is obviously, or maybe not obviously, but is also the take home message, I suppose, of Mosaic is this kind of, this complex loop of cause and effect. And, you know, that's, that's kind of what Mosaic's trying to do. They're trying to take a snapshot, I suppose, but a holistic snapshot of the whole entire picture, you know, because one, one thing doesn't exist without being impacted by another. Yeah, but, yeah, all of the connections and the interconnectedness between the systems and all the elements that make up the, the landscape and the ecosystem. Yeah, and you, to- you totally get that from, from, the, from the film. So, yeah. Awesome. So that brings us to the next part of the show, which uh, I like to call Fieldwork Fun Times. And I suppose the whole trip for you was probably fun. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. It's quite hard to live on a ship with, you know, the seasickness and the strangers and the, I don't know about Polish Stern, but, you know, the lot of fried food that you might get. (laughs) On board a ship. <laughs> um, so do you have any fun uh, stories or anecdotes that you'd like to, anything that sticks out? I suppose, what was your best bit? What was your favourite bit? One of my favourite moments was a day we were on the ice. It was at Met City. And behind the Met City was the playground for the atmospheric scientists with all of their instruments. And it was kind of right behind that. And, you know, it's funny. I thought that, I thought that the Arctic would be sharp with lots of very distinct lines and edges. But I found that it was actually very soft and round. Um, maybe it wasn't that way in other, for other people or in other um, seasons, but that's how I found. So on this one day behind Met City, it was like staring at clouds. There were just all of these shapes and mounds coming out of the snow. So there was like a whale's tail, there was a snail, shell spiral a trapezoid no not a trapezoid a rhombus just all of these shapes coming out of the snow and they were soft colors of like pinks and periwinkles um, purples and blues and same with the sky and sparkling and it was that way for almost 360 degrees and just for one moment just for a few seconds I felt what I thought or what I imagine it would feel like to be a baby polar bear born into that environment and to know nothing else, to not know cars, towers, lights, stadiums, traffic signals, just to really 
know nothing else except this sight that was in front of me. And I could only hold it for a few seconds. And then every time I tried to recall it, I could hold it less and less. Um, but that, that was exhilarating. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. No, total sense. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, that's really nice. Another interesting phrase, which you say on your film, which I suppose is like, like you say, it's more kind of soft things than hard edges. You know, this is, this is the new Arctic, that it's kind of thin and fragile rather than this big, bulwark of ice that is you know never going to end up there i suppose that's not a radical message for people who are like the ice caps are melting everyone knows but yeah no that's at home when you see just when you see it on the the film as well people were like living and working up there yeah and that that came from matthew shoop um when he was talking about um you know just the ice as he knew it 10 years ago when he first conceived of the project that is mosaic and then um what what the ice looks like now um and so those those were that came from him um and his his description of the arctic but it is true and i've never been to antarctica but you know from what i've heard people talk it's totally different like it's you know there are these like it just confronts you more whereas my experience with the arctic was it was so unassuming you know, you really had to spend time looking to see all the colors and all the different variations of light, mm-hmm. much less assuming. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Excellent. So I suppose having, that was your best bit or your favorite bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hesitate to ask what was the worst because you don't have to share that, obviously. Um, but I suppose what would be interesting to know is as a relative outsider, you know, not someone who uh, is a regularly goes on these cruises <laughs> what surprised you the most about living on board a scientific research vessel i think the worst part with anything is always the politics you know there's just always politics and that's just always there and you can let that become the whole story if you want i chose to not let it be my story in the arctic at all or just frame my experience but I think everyone can agree whether you're in academia, which is wherever you are, it's always the politics. You know, that's the worst part of anything. As an outsider, I would say that I, I would say that I was an outsider in that I was not a scientist, that I was an artist coming into the scientific community. However, so many of the scientists were artists in their own right. Um, etchings, drawings, paintings. I mean, it was so much fun to see how creative all of these scientists were. And, you know, that they, that they enjoyed or that they either wanted to do art and they chose science, but they were very creative. And I was also surprised to learn just how diverse Arctic science is, or I guess how diverse polar research is. Um, you know, it's not just this one monolithic thing of, you know, science or Arctic science, right? Each scientist was very interested in, like, you know, had their specific question that they were interested in studying this one part of this big system. You know, they didn't consider themselves climate change scientists. They were just climate scientists that had a question that they were after. So that was a lot of fun to see, just kind of the diversity in how these scientists came to do this work. You know, some of them were like, oh, you know, we had a meteorologist who was like, I am just interested in the math problems. You know, like I love, I love the math. I, and I came to this through a conceptual framework. And then somebody else, another meteorologist might say, oh, well, I came to this because I loved 
being in storms when I was little, just the experience of storms. So yeah, just that diversity of people from, from different countries of different ages, all walks of life and different parts of their journey. Um, I think it's really rare to be in a community diverse in that way of we have people from early 20s up to I'm not going to say how old but you know much older (laughs) so that so the community itself was so much fun because I'd never been in a community like that with people of such a diverse age range and from so many different parts of the world Um, I'll probably never really get to experience a community like that again Um, but as an artist even though so many of the scientists had their own art practices and loved to paint or draw or do whatever. It was interesting to see that there was still a little bit of unintentional, I don't know what to say, totally unintentional views of art, I think in general, um, which was funny to me. Like even, even my friends on the ship who were super supportive, of course, of what I was doing and of the film and just of art, you know, would say things like, oh, you know, I, I was so good at art when I was little. Um, I'm, I was so good at art, but I you know I decided I wanted to do something useful with my life, you know, so you get, or, or other ones that are like, oh, you know, like I was looking at different disciplines, trying different things. And then, you know, my life fell apart. Um, so I went into art, you know, before changing to something else. So there were definitely still a lot of perspectives on art and being an artist yeah. um, that I encountered in the scientific community. Yeah. Again, well, scientists are like, you know, they think of science job and art hobby, I suppose, you know, yeah. weird. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what it's like in the US, but you know, it's exactly as you described like that in the UK, you know, at quite a young age, you're forced to choose between science and art. And then especially when you get to like high school and higher education, and you, you know, it's not possible to do both, supposedly, but then it totally should be, obviously. <laughs> and it totally yeah, yeah, so that was my experience as the artist on a ship full of scientists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you think SciComm communicating science is, you know, something that, I want to say, motivates you or kind of interests you? Or, you know, art for the sake of itself? Oh, we're getting quite philosophical here. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, all of it, right? Yeah. What, what even oh, is God. art? See my own words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, you know, so my... My MFA program was interdisciplinary documentary media practices, um, but it was really rooted in nonfiction art theory. And so, you know, there are so many different methodologies and approaches to an art practice. You can have an art practice that's just creating. You can have an art practice that is translating, you know, data visualization, for example, just translating, using a visual means to translate um, numbers or scientific data of some kind. I'm really personally interested in like how I can use an artistic practice as a research methodology in its own right, right? So how I can use um, an art practice to explore research and learn about nonfiction topics. And on the one hand, there's a certain level of creating that's involved in that. And then on the other hand, there is a lot of translating. And I think the translating is a lot of fun. You know, I spend a lot of time doing, you know, creating things just from my head. I mean, I guess nothing's, you know, exist in a vacuum, but, you know, there is a difference between creating, I think, and translating. Mm -hmm. And I've grown very fond of um, figuring out creative ways of translating, not just for the sake of data visualization and not just for the sake of education, 
but how can I translate one something in one form into another form? Yeah, I think a little bit of that maybe in the planetarium film, um, but that was definitely more focused on clear, digestible takeaways for education outreach. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do love it. I am hooked. I would like to continue. Okay, excellent. Bizarre, isn't it? Because scientists just, you have to be creative to come up with experimental designs. And then you have to be creative to, you know, even if you're, even if you're submitting to the most drying, boring academic journal ever, you have to make your graphs readable and understandable. And sure, there's a set rotor for like doing some things, but not... You know, if you want to reach more people, which you do with your science, then you have, you have to be able to, you know, be creative and translate it exactly as you say. It's the same. It's like science and art. It's the, it's the same coin, isn't it? Just different. I totally think so. And it's the same with art. You know, they say, oh, you could be happy, you know, making art in a cave, but it, you know, does it matter if nobody sees it? So we also need people to see it or understand it, maybe not in a literal way, the way we intend, but in their own way. And and even experiments, I mean, to come up with an experiment, like that is a leap into the imagination, right? You have to take a step into an imagined space in order to look back and say, oh, maybe this is what it, this is what it, what could be happening. So yeah. there is a lot of imagination in science. Yeah. And I think actually to come in a, back in a perfect full circle, Mosaic is a perfect example of that. Because like, I mean, I don't know whose idea it was to first be like, oh, why don't we freeze a ship in the ice for the whole year and then see what comes out of that. But no one's done it before. As as well, that was, there's some interesting history there. So Friedrich Nansen was the Norwegian explorer and he first froze his ship to an ice flow, trying to see how it would drift across the Arctic. And so Mosaic was very very much following in that, in his footsteps of that trajectory. Okay, um, is that the Fram? The shows yeah, that was the Fram. Yeah, I totally did do my research. I promise everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but, but Matthew Shoup, the, one of the co, the co coordinator of Mosaic, it, it was his, his brainchild. <laughs> how did you, how did you feel like after when you, so you, so it's, it's, it's January in 2020 now and how do you how do you leave the Polish turn? You take the Russian icebreaker. What was it called? Kapitan Dranitsen. Uh, so that takes you back to Norway from the Polish turn, and then you're right back, and it's January, and the world's a little bit different, I imagine. <laughs> and suddenly, the COVID is more on the horizon. Should have stayed in Norway. Really, <laughs> should have stayed in Norway. And I mean, we'll have to speak to someone else from Mosaic to find out how COVID has impacted there you know, what happened, because I'm sure that's a whole, a whole podcast. I know the, the exhibition did carry on in a, you know, obviously they made adjustments, <laughs> but they, it, they, it's still up there, the Polish Stone, as far as I know. It's still, it's due to come back soon, like you say. Yes. It's been a year. And then so you're back in Norway and you fly home and what, what were your immediate feelings, I suppose, at getting home? Did you, like, I can, from my own experience, you just turn around and you're like, wait, did that even happen? <laughs> yeah. Because... The Arctic is so removed from any experience I've ever had. It's so easy for it to quickly fall into, like, was it just all a dream? Like, did it even happen? It, it feels so far away so quickly. It's alarming. I was not ready to leave the Arctic. I did not want to leave. 
the ice or the people and yeah and when I got back you know I was like okay I've sort of been training for quarantine my entire life uh, I just <laughs> on a personal note and so I was really excited to come back and be social and go out and see people and you know just I think be more social than I had been at least for three years as a student. Yeah, I just didn't realize how you know focused on work you know everything was. So so yeah. So to get back and have this like plan of being very social and going out and seeing people and meeting new people and talking to people and be like, all right, I have to find people from other parts of the world, right? Because my academic Boulder, Colorado bubble is very small. Um, so then to be in my room in quarantine, kind of having to digest this experience and make this film. It was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, at least the silver lining was that you had a lot of footage to look back on. <laughs> yeah, 360. So I was in the yeah. middle of it. <laughs> yeah, it just gets its hooks into you, doesn't it? The whole, the whole polar thing. But it, it is important, I think, to think about that because if it you know, felt like a dream so quickly for me. And I had spent three and a half months there. You know, how are people who have never been to the Arctic supposed to kind of connect with this idea of the ice melting, you know, due to climate change? And, you know, they don't have a reference point for it. I don't have a reference point for it. And I went there and then all of a sudden, like it evaporated and it felt like maybe it never happened. So how am I supposed to um, communicate that experience to other people and you know, connect with them when they've never been. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a hard question. I'm not sure I have an answer. <laughs> I'm hoping, uh, you know, hopefully through things like this podcast, we can make it a bit more real and tangible. I, I would like to think, and through your film and things like that as well, obviously, of course. Um, so that was one of, our, one of our shared goals. Awesome. We like to call this section the Polar Plug. So Amy, this is where I give you like two minutes to talk about uh, whatever you would like to talk about then. Any project you're working on, it can be something you've done or something you're going to do. Well, I just want to say thank you for inviting me to be a guest and of course for everything you've done to promote the film. I am so excited that it's finally out into the world and I can't wait even more for when people can actually see it the way it was meant to be seen in a planetarium theater, which is how I designed it to be seen. Um, and I guess I just wanted to remind everyone that we do distribute it for free, of course, like it is available to anybody who wants it. So if your planetarium theater near you is not um, connected to this planetarium's network of sharing content, just reach out and you can request it. So any planetarium theater can um, screen it, they can have the film and that goes for the VR version as well. We have another planetarium film about the rest of the expedition in the works. Can't wait for that. So keep your ears out for Drifting North Part 2, Midnight Sun. I don't know if that's actually going to be the title, but we had Polar Night. And so then this is going to be the part of the expedition where of summer in the Arctic. Yeah, I'm working on a film about the Arctic more broadly with Leanna Nixon, who is on the Polar Stern right now filming for the second planetarium film. Um, on Thin Ice, Love Letters to the Arctic, a film that's a work in progress, which we're excited about. And then I'm also working with a scientist to go back to the Arctic because I'm totally hooked. Oh, um, and exciting. I didn't want to ask that in case you were like, no, I'm no, never going <laughs> to. No, I'm totally hooked. And I just for the whole thing. And 
uh, I'm hoping to continue working in the capacity of finding creative ways to communicate, create, translate the science for broader audiences. You know, I, I know that uh, that public outreach can be, well, there's just so many things that it can be. And um, a lot of the scientists I've talked to said, oh, yeah, we mostly, you know, present at conferences, you know, but I love collaborating. You know, that's how I found Mosaic was inter- like looking for interdisciplinary collaboration opportunities. And so I just hope to keep doing that and encourage all of the scientists to collaborate with artists and any other discipline, really, um, to find creative ways of communicating their work. Okay, fabulous. That was awesome. Uh, just to, just to uh, confirm, the Planetarium Network, is it called FISC? F-I-S-K-E. Yeah, the University of Colorado Boulder's Fisk Planetarium. Okay, there you go. If there's a planetarium near you, tell them to check it out. Okay, so uh, that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, thank you so much for joining. And if you uh, would like to, you know, like, rate and subscribe or leave a review on all of your little podcast places where you get this, that would be excellent. Thank you. I've been Jack Buckingham and my host today has been Amy Richmond. Thank you, Amy, so much for joining me. And where can people find you if they wanted to contact you about anything like this, social media or a university or what? Yeah, uh, email is probably best. Okay, you don't want to say that, you can tell me or you can do Twitter. Oh yeah, I know, it's um, my first name, middle initial and last name, so amy.l dot richmond at colorado.edu okay excellent and if you want to see the film drifting north into the polar night uh the vr version and just the regular version are both on youtube and we'll put links to apex as well i'm sure okay excellent thank you everyone and uh, join us again on polar times for more science and stories from the coolest places on the planet Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.